0: Hey, family, I'm Mark, and this is the Kinship Collective Podcast. We are ending otherness. We are sharing and lamenting and celebrating our stories and reimagining scripture together in ways that build empathy, connectedness, and solidarity, and help us to experience one another as family. This week, we get to hang with Andre Henry. He's a singer, songwriter, activist, inviting us to imagine and fight for the world that ought to be. We get to talk about his journey from art to activism to an integrated artistic activism. We get to talk about the toll that that has taken on his mental health. And we talk about his forthcoming book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. And then we reimagine Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. Here's Andre Henry. Ladies and gentlemen, today's guest is so incredible. It, it's making me smile, Andre, because I'm going to bring up something that you might not know. Okay. But today's guest, social activist incredible human being changing the world, reminding us that it doesn't have to be this way. Andre Henry. Come on. Give it up. There we go. There we go. Thanks,
1: y'all. I feel like y'all here. Come on. I really hope that you're you're doing voiceover work for money somewhere because that was great.
0: Oh, you have a great movie thanks, voice? Andre.
1: Like a movie trailer oh, voice. Thanks.
0: That's that's what my friends, my friends that I grew up with tell me you got a face for radio. So <laughs> <laughs> Andre, this is what I wanted to tell you. My favorite place in my city, one of my favorite places. I would go there, I would tell my daughters. Most of the time when I drive by, I would stop. I say, This is where I remember that I come from a long line of people who are unbreakable, who have navigated this world. And it's the Jackie and Mac Robinson Mm. Memorial. Mm -hmm. And many times when I would go there, I would see this local guy huddled up with some people, (laughs) strategizing (laughs) for some world change. (laughs) And I would would let them do their thing because I knew I was dropping in just to remind myself of fortitude and remind myself that, we can keep going if Jackie can kind of break through and mm-hmm. do his thing. Um, but I would always see this one guy there <laughs> huddled up with some people. Wow. You might know him. You might see him. Wow. Wow. Yeah.
1: I didn't realize that, you know, like, man, yeah, we did have a lot of meetings uh, over there by the Jackie Robinson heads in Pasadena um, yep. Yep. with with Black Lives Matter Pasadena, actually. yeah. Um, yeah. Man, wow. (laughs) yeah that's so cool yeah
0: it is cool and and honestly i think what's when the beauty of being in that space for me was always being reminded of internal strength and fortitude and then to think about you being in that space it was a reminder also of the continued work and the continued journey and we've um so andre would you introduce yourself to folks who may not know you sure share a little bit about your story
1: Sure. I mean, you 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 introduced me really well, so I don't know if there's much more to add, honestly. Um, but uh, yeah, my name is Andre. I am a singer songwriter, and um, you know, in 2016, the summer of 2016, that was my final straw. I feel like many Black people have a final mm. straw when yeah. they get tired of bearing the weight of this anti-Black world. And the mm. mental burden of of blackness—not that—not that blackness is just a burden, but you know, mm. but it can be. And I think that many of us do have a final straw, where we say, "All right, enough is enough. I've got to do something to fight for my people." Mm. And um, I have been making music my whole life, and up to then, you know, I, I wrote some political songs here and there, but for the most part, my music was about romance, about love, you know? Um, But in 2016, after I watched Philando Castile bleed to death in front of his girlfriend and their four-year-old daughter, the day after I watched Alton Sterling um, be killed by local police, um, I said, Mm. enough is enough. I have to put my body in the fight for racial justice. And Mm. since then, my creativity has been Aimed at uh, promoting racial justice and promoting um, information about non-practical insight about nonviolent struggle for people, Um, which I mean is a whole journey, and I, you know, we can get into it or not, but you know that is how I would. I think that's how I would introduce myself. You know, I'm an artist at heart who cares a lot about racial justice um, and is trying to tell the world that it doesn't have to be this way you know that we can live mm-hmm. we can live in yeah. any version of society that we want <laughs> you know if mm-hmm. we decide to take action on that society together
0: mm. I love hearing that Andre for me I didn't know that you were that that music and that sort of artistry was a part of who you were so long mm-hmm. I was introduced to you maybe in 2018 or so mm-hmm. The it doesn't have to be this way. Shirt
1: mm-hmm.
0: by a friend locally, and and what I had known of you was oh he he was a writer in Miami, and he wrote mm-hmm. and he wrote here and there, and so I knew you of the activist kind of side of you, mm-hmm. and that writing, and so when I now go back and listen to music or listen to some of your new music, for me it's interesting to think that artistry came first,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then to me. I think that there's a when I think about your some of the work that you've been doing to grow as an artist now. Mm-hmm. Here's another kind of like insight about me. One of my most influential, maybe I'll say still kind of favorite artist right now is Nipsey Hussle. Okay, yeah. And he used to work with a group called Fifteen Hundred or Nothing, yeah, uh-huh. A yeah. production group. Uh-huh. And I think now you work with them
1: also and have been kind of training with them if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I did just graduate I did just graduate from Fifteen Hundred Sound Academy, which is founded by James Fauntleroy and Lawrence Dobson, who are uh, you know, the founders of Fifteen Hundred or Nothing, the the band, the collective, you know, and uh, they had just finished a production course like a six-month music business music production course with them got to mm. got to meet james and saw rants just about every day for six months and you know uh and their friends you know like and i you know i don't want to start name dropping but you know who they're connected yeah. to yeah. like a lot of their friends yeah. came through yep. and they just put us on game man like they helped us to understand uh first of all the trade secrets of the business like i've been i've been releasing music since 2009. I've had the Mm -hmm. fortune, honestly, to work in the studio with iconic singer-songwriters, Motown singer-songwriters, you know, songwriters who Mm -hmm. have written some of the biggest songs of the past century. Um, But... I needed the trade secrets. I needed to know certain things that producers do to set their work apart. So I mean, that's really like the mm. the thing. So mm-hmm. I'm coming out of 1500 Sound Academy. I keep telling people I'm coming out like Jafar at the at the lamp at the at the end of Aladdin, like phenomenal, <laughs> not <laughs> yeah. phenomenal cosmic powers. That's <laughs> mm. how I feel. You know, I just feel really empowered by them, especially rants poured into me you know, I feel like in a personal way, you know, like I'm not like his, you know, I'm not like his uh, second, I'm not like his right hand or nothing like that. You know what I mean? But you could tell that he really took it seriously working with all of the students there at 1500 South Academy Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, he he really dropped some gems on me personally that have given me some clarity coming out of this that I feel like is really gonna show up in my music And just one more thing about that, like, you understand, like, they're doing this to give back to the community. Like, this is why they're doing this. They want to help black people Mm. build their own businesses and to avoid as much as we can possible the kind of exploitation that black people have historically experienced while you know mm-hmm. making music and being artists so yeah you know real some real exciting things happening out of there uh through 1500 sound academy uh i got a, a major placement you know with the nfl that just aired over Yee! yeah over the last week and you know there's more to come that i can't really talk about yet yes. but there's more to come come on <laughs>
0: andre that's incredible I appreciate man. It. that is incredible what's interesting to me when i hear you share about All the work that you've done for that, for the musical kind of artistry side of your of who you are, Mm -hmm. the expression. I'm also thinking about you finishing this book. You just finished a book that will release next month. All the white friends I couldn't keep. Mm -hmm. So while you're writing music and 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 (laughs) that, I just imagine Jafar coming out of that that lamp. But I'm also it's so for me it's Jafar out of the lamp is. I have these powers I've always wanted and didn't know I could have them, mm-hmm. and now I have them, and I'm going to exert them out into the world. Mm-hmm. So there's that piece of Jafar coming out of the lamp, and now I'm thinking about while you were feeling that, you're also continuing the hard work of mm-hmm. anti-racism, mm-hmm. Um, I don't even black healing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and you've written this book, and for me, when I think about the blogs that you've written. But you've written now this book about all the white friends you couldn't keep. Mm
1: -hmm. Would you share with us a little bit about your book? Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, as I do that, you know, along the point, because I realize, and I I just had a, I think I had an interview a couple of days ago where we were talking about this, is that I realized that my personal journey, first off, is what I've been taking people on in general, right? Like I've always Mm -hmm. been, I've always had a kind of vulnerability You know, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I was younger, it was just straight up oversharing, you know, but I learned (laughs) to turn that into vulnerability and to share Mm -hmm. my journey with people. And I realized that that's what artists do. Artists are into self-expression, right? We share our stories with you. And it's like Henry Nowen said that oftentimes what is most personal is what's most universal. And I think that's how artists make, make connections is that we tell you what's going on inside of us. And there's a bunch of people out there who maybe didn't feel the necessity or the courage or whatever it is to share those things as well. But they feel those things, too. And that's how we end up resonating. I just saw the the Tupac Shakur exhibit yesterday and I realized this is what Tupac was doing, you know, like he just wanted to mm-hmm. share his story, mm-hmm. but he also wanted to change the world and he came from a family of the Panthers and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I say mm-hmm. all that to say that for me like my journey has had a lot to do with integration, just breaking mm. down these barriers that we assume exist in the world, you know. And so for me, like I come from a I come from a family of activists I come from a Jamaican family where my father was a reggae musician making music in Jamaica as, mm. at the same time as Bob Marley. And so for him as an activist interested in black liberation and a musician, you know, who exposed me to reggae music uh, early on in life, there was never any mm-hmm. distinction between making music And fighting for social justice you know what I'm saying like yes especially because in Jamaican culture artists are so influential (laughs) you know like Mm, uh, that reggae music is deeply political deeply spiritual deeply sensual all at the same time Mm, and politicians mm -hmm. know that if they want to get people on their side they need to get the artists on their side so I just want to say that as I do that because all the white friends I couldn't keep is first off framed around three of my songs there are three parts to the book and the lyrics of those songs frame each part of the book intentionally because when i was writing the chapters of this book i literally was thinking of okay well um about delusional and then i wrote chapters 1 and 2 thinking about how thinking about delusional and i wrote um, chapter 5 i think it is uh, we we don't debate with racists thinking about how long and i wrote mm. you know how to be hopeful thinking about it doesn't have to be this way you know my my the song that encapsulates my life's motto and that most people know me for you know yeah. because before all the white friends uh I couldn't keep was a book. It was a set of songs, right? It's a memoir, mm. right? It's a memoir that covers the years from 2014 to 2021-ish, right? And then I dip back into my personal story as well to give people context, let people get to know me. But while I was going mm-hmm. through those things, I was writing songs, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. releasing those yeah. songs and performing those songs. So, um, yeah. So all the white friends I couldn't keep is the book that I needed when mm. when I woke up in the summer of 2016 and said, I can't do this anymore. I can't bear the burden of blackness in silence anymore. I have to speak yeah. up and speak up and speak up often. And mm-hmm. I also have to learn how did my predecessors Actually, fight this thing and win some ground, right? Like things have not changed as much as they ha- as they need to. But I mean, right. the white only signs, whites only signs, are not up on the water fountains and the restaurants mm-hmm. anymore. So how do they do that? And so that sent me on a journey to study systemic racism, and to study nonviolent struggles, study the civil rights movement, study so study uh, freedom struggles around the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what I've done here is really, well, first off, I started to feel like it was my life's mission to mainstream the information that I found on that journey. Because what Uh, I found as I studied freedom movements all over the world was a bunch of stories throughout history of a few ordinary, organized, outraged people working together to confront dictatorships, totalitarian regimes, you know, um, apartheid and empires and winning, you know? And mm-hmm. I found that, well, first off, the thing that I felt was no one ever told me these stories. I didn't know these stories existed. And if more mm-hmm. people knew that these stories existed, then maybe we would have a freer world. Maybe we would actually gain some ground against racism. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm really trying to do in the book is give people that information that I didn't have when I woke when mm-hmm. I when I woke up and said, I gotta fight. Because what I see is a lot of people subscribing to strategies for racial justice and racial progress that are not gonna work. (laughs) And partly Mm -hmm. why they won't work is because they're given to us by white people who first off are not invested in that progress in any real way, right? Right, right. (laughs) Right? And Mm -hmm. also who don't know what they're talking about because they don't know the stories either. Mm. Wow, there's
0: a couple of things that stand out to me. About what you just said, mm-hmm. the first thing is, if you haven't listened to Andre's podcast, you can it, what you just said reminded me of your most recent podcast, where you and your guest talked about any responses to racism that are reactive. Mm. They're not going to do it. There's a second word that he used to reactive.
1: I can't remember what oh. but I know what you're talking about and I could yeah. I could paraphrase this because I went, when he said it, I went yes because I feel I have felt the same way so often. And mm-hmm. that is that people have this misconception about social progress and about movements in particular, that people seem mm. to think that movements erupt spontaneously, right? And yeah. just kind of through sheer improvisa- improvisation and luck, mm-hmm. they achieve their mm-hmm. goals, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I have a mentor who uh, led the movement that toppled Ser- Serbidom- Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia in the late 90s. And he mm-hmm. says there are two kinds of movements, spontaneous and successful. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Because yeah. movements for, for for social progress, the ones uh, tend to be, tend to gain more ground. I can't say always because there are times when spontaneous uprisings, you know, are successful. But oftentimes freedom movements are more successful when people get together, they analyze their situation in detail and they create strategic plans, you know, to disrupt the the to disrupt oppressive power, which is actually the case with the civil mm-hmm. rights movement. People don't understand how organized the civil rights movement was. You know, when they went into mm-hmm. Birmingham, first of all, before they ever set foot into Birmingham, Dr. King and many other civil rights leaders they gathered in Georgia <laughs> at a retreat center in Georgia four months before they ever arrived in Birmingham. And they mm. they planned. They planned out the different phases of the movement that they intended to do. Then they went into Birmingham and they quietly organized 250 volunteers they took, uh, they took down all of the data of like, how long does it take to get from the headquarters at the 16th Street Baptist Church down to the business district and to the business? How long does it take to get from those businesses to the jail? How many jail cells are in the jail so that they can make sure that they flood the jails when they get arrested, you know, and all that mm. kind of stuff. And then they had to wow. keep re-strategizing because when they were going to launch their campaign, they they realized that there was going to be an election coming up and they didn't think it was an ideal time to launch the campaign at the same time as the election because in the white the white power structure would just use the movement activity to say see this is why we need more law and order we're going to crack down on this right and so mm, so they had mm-hmm. to they had they made the very difficult decision to leave Birmingham right at that point <laughs> and come back at a later time so my point is that highly 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 strategic um planning went into this and they were literally thinking about the power structure and all the kind of stuff. And I, I bring that to juxtapose it against this popular idea that all we need to fight racism is for white people and black people to sit down at a table and talk about their life stories together. Now <laughs> I'm not saying that that's not a part of it, you know, like that could be uh, helpful. That could be wow. helpful. But the thing I'm trying to tell people yeah. is that the problem is not that black people don't understand white people. In fact, black people understand white people as, as a group in the, in the context of this oppressive situation, more mm-hmm. than white people seem to understand their se- themselves because we have to have this information so that we can survive, right? We have to, have, we yeah. have to know how to navigate a white society. That's not the problem. Wow. The problem mm-hmm. is that we live in a society that was built on the premise of human hierarchy. We live yeah. in a society that is structured on inequality by design and we have to change yeah. that. Goodness. When you say that, back to
0: the idea about racism being able to be transformed by sitting down and, and mm-hmm. sharing stories with one another, mm-hmm. it reminds me of a friend, and, and his definition of racism always stuck out to me. And even when I look for definitions, he studied Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
0: he has a PhD in, in some of that, um, relig- the, the, the faith of Dr. King, mm. but also the activism of dr king Mm -hmm. dr dr jeff leo shout shout you out (laughs) and but the but his definition of racism has stuck to me this is the definition that i teach my children my daughters and and uh, but he talked about racism isn't about it's not discrimination Mm. it is it is the, the discrimination based on race with the systemic power to oppress. Right, exactly. And so, me having a conversation with somebody with a different perspective, that's great interpersonally, yeah. but that's not going to change a system or change the systemic power that is oppressing. Right, exactly. That we've been rehearsing for the past 400 plus years in this mm-hmm, country. Mm-hmm. So, I, I really appreciate you calling that out, and that, that's, that's helpful. It's really helpful. And to me, it does think there is a, it's almost like my brain is spinning because there is, we definitely, the conversations still need to happen. The, the burden of that conversation, which seems to always fall on the, the oppressed person, mm. it's not their job to tell their story or to do any convincing, right. which to me lines up with what you're talking about, the kinds of friends we can't keep.
1: Right. I mean, and that was a huge problem with the white friends I couldn't keep is that they expected for me to convince them. Right. Um, The onus of the onus of initiating the conversation and maintaining Mm. the conversation and following up on the conversation was on me. And really, you know, this is what this is actually something I fear about the book. One thing I fear Mm. about the book is that because we live in this world where people really do think in compartments that they won't sense the integration between these things, right? So let's think Mm -hmm. about Andre as a character in this story, right? What what does Andre want? This is just storytelling basics, right? The protagonist has to want something and there has to be something in the way, some obstacles that the protagonist has to overcome in order to get there, right? So Mm -hmm. in this story, Andre wants to understand how he can play a more active and direct part in the struggle for black freedom, right? He wants to be free himself, right? Mm -hmm. But he understands also that his sense of personal freedom is tied to the collective, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's Mm -hmm. what he wants, that's what he's going after. He's like, he's, now he starts writing more political songs. He's like, I'm not writing all these love songs anymore. What I have is music. I'm going to use that music to try to change people's minds, right? Mm, and while mm-hmm. he does that, he starts reading more about systemic racism and reading more about nonviolent struggle and hoping to bring that into some kind of creative expression and into his music so that he can you know, continue to do that, right? Okay, so what mm-hmm. stands in his way? The white people he's known on his li- all his life, <laughs> uh, those become his those become the antagonists. You know, because wow. as I start speaking up about my own experiences of racism, as I start learning about social progress and learning about nonviolent struggle and trying to share those things, you know, they become the trolls in the comments. They they become the people who start calling Andrea racist. They become the people you know wow. who who are trying to stop him, right? Yeah. And so that's why I mean the book came out of a blog that I wrote called To All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, where I literally wrote an open letter to them and posted it on my blog. Right. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they had been online saying, you know, I'm a racist and I hate white people, and all this kind of stuff. And the thing that I said was, you know what, y'all can't be going around saying I have saying I hate white people if you don't have a receipt of my hatred. Like you don't, yeah. where did I say it? Quote me, S- send me the screenshot of the text, send me the blog, send send it to me. When I said that I hate white people, mm-hmm. I never said it. Mm-hmm. So I wrote mm-hmm. this blog and said, there is no receipt of my hatred because it ain't there, but I will write mm-hmm. you a receipt of my love. Oh. So I wrote this blog to write them a receipt of my love for them and to say, the reason why we're not together, the reason why we can't have relationship. It's not because Mm. I hate you, but because you won't listen to me. (laughs) Yeah. All right. I'm living under the gaslighting of a white, of an anti-black system, right, in which Mm -hmm. individual people who believe that they are white, because we all know that whiteness is, you know, race is a... Invented category, right? Social, mm-hmm. right? It's it's an invented category, and whiteness is you know also invented. So, all right, so these people believe that they're white, and so they become agents of that anti-black system, trying to enforce it on me, telling me that I can't be angry about racial injustice i'm not supposed to protest racial injustice i'm not supposed Mm. to understand uh, america's violent racist history and speak about it i'm not supposed to take it personally you know all these kind of things so they're trying to police the way that i think and feel and move in the world and as long as they do that we can't have relationship because Mm. the thing that i have to do is that i have to pursue my own freedom and the freedom of my people right Mm -hmm. that's what i have Mm -hmm. to do right mm-hmm. and anybody who stands in the way of that you know can't be close to me mhm
0: mm-hmm. there's there's a couple of things that came up in my mind while you were sharing you started to talk about <clears throat> why you couldn't keep the friends that you couldn't keep mhm were there people who proved relationally because it's not about their worth right it's about the relationship right and a relationship isn't about you or me it is about how we relate to one another Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so were there people who proved relationally that they were committed to who you were that they Mm. could hear your story and honor who you were and who you were becoming and how you were growing and how you were changing or transforming or I don't even, I would call it maturing. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know. Waking up.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Decolonizing is how I'm talking about it now. There you go. I am, I am losing or trying to, I'm trying to lose the colonial mind. I'm trying to lose Mm. the mind that this anti-black world has tried to, has, has imposed On our people, on our ancestors, right? And all the way down the line, they want for us to think and behave like white people. Like that is the ultimate, that is the ultimate success of the project of white supremacy is that non-white people would submit to it, that we would take our place as inferiors in that system and just go along with it, just comply, right? Mm. So that's what I'm trying to do, right? And there have been some people who have gone along the journey with me, you know? There have been some, but that also has required for them to also try to lose the colonial mind themselves. And that's something that I'm not a decolonial theorist. I'm not an academic in decolonial thought and all that kind of stuff. And honestly, I'm not trying Mm -hmm. to be, you know, (laughs) I have a personal story of learning that, oh, my gosh, like these people really tried to make a white person out of me. And it kind of worked to an extent. You know, and so yeah, I have yeah. to unlearn those things. And there have been white people in my life that have also been willing to unlearn that as well, who have come come along with me. I wouldn't say it's the majority of the white friends that I knew, but I use an I use an allegory in the book uh, <laughs> that comes from my upbringing. <laughs> Which now that I'm not evangelical and the world has changed so much, it feels so silly uh, in hindsight. But when I was a young Andre, there was almost a hysteria about an a an apocalyptic event we call the Rapture. I don't know if everyone is familiar with this, but I'm a you know just in case you're not familiar, if you ever watch The Leftovers on HBO. Y'all, that's that's exactly pretty much what it is, is that Jesus is going to come back and just take people. They're going to disappear. Mm. Um, Mm. And it's going to take them to heaven. And then the next seven years are going to be hell on earth until Jesus comes back again and judges everybody. Right. And, you know, separates heaven and hell, kind of stuff. All right. So, when I was a kid, I was deathly afraid of this. I woke up every morning with a real sense that today people could start disappearing because, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and the thing that you didn't want to be was left behind. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, they had the left behind book series and these movies about being <laughs> left behind and all that kind of stuff. It was everywhere. Okay, so I use that as an allegory to talk about what happened between my my white friends and I, because I learned later on, you know, in my theological studies and all of that, that uh, apocalypse just means to reveal it means to unveil. You know, Mm. it was a it was a popular genre of literature in the in the ancient world. And so we have one in the Bible, Apocalypsos, which is rendered as Revelation, which is John trying to reveal the true nature of the Roman Empire to his neighbors who were under extreme pressure to assimilate and to go along with the dominant culture, which was dominating them. (laughs) You know, goodness
0: Um, gracious. So.
1: Right. So once I learned that, I was like, oh, actually, an apocalypse is not actually a bad thing. It's not something to fear. It's just awakening. And honestly, in context, it's a political awakening because, you know, at the yeah. time, you know, people were, you know, there was this whole cult around Caesar and it, you know, made Caesar look like a god and this, the empire is okay. doing this wonderful thing, establishing peace around the world. And John writes this, uh, this apocalypse to unveil caesar as a monster and the empire as a as an agent of violence right mm-hmm. so anyway so that's not that's not something to fear well i feel like the black lives matter movement has done that to america and has done that to the mm-hmm. global system of anti uh, global system of anti black violence has unveiled has pulled back the veil on so many countries that were established on you know to par- to quote dr king the uh the sweat and suffering of black people Right. Mm. And in that apocalypse, some people just got left behind because they didn't want to go. Right. Those are the white friends I couldn't keep. Uh there and they were always welcome to come. Oh, a part of why I wanted to go into all of that is because what I learned is that when you do go through that painful process of political awakening, you find people on the other side who become your community. Yeah. Everybody can't yeah. go through it with I shouldn't say can't, everybody's not willing to go through it with you goodness but you will find people on the other side who share your values who see what you see you know and they become new families so yes there were some that came along with me but i also found a lot of non-black people a lot of uh you know and a handful of white people on the other side i mean i shouldn't say it like i'm through with it i'm still you know right waking up but I think this is one of the most important things to learn because, for two things, and I, I want to say this up front so I don't forget because I can tend to get lost. So one is, um, it's hard for people to let go of those who don't want to go along with them, right? Right? They don't. It, it feels, and it's it's really difficult, you know. And the second is, it has to do with misconceptions about unity that are wildly popular about racial justice. So I'll start with the the wildly popular, you know, <laughs> misconceptions about pursuing racial justice because I think that'll lead us naturally to the, you know, you can let these people go. First off, people take the, like the last bit of Dr. King's speech at the Washington, at the March on Washington, because he keeps saying, you know, we can do this together and we can do that together. And, you know, I have a dream, little black boys and little black girls, you know, uh, playing together and all that kind of stuff. Right. And they they do that and they say, OK, well, this was Dr. King's dream of unity. And so what we need to just do is come together. Dr. King was talking about unity for a specific purpose. Like they forget even in that section of that speech, he says we can go to jail together <laughs> Now, white people never talk about going to jail with black people when they talk about racial justice and racial unity and that's coming together. And they never talk about going to jail. Why not? Well, why was Dr. King talking about going to jail? Because he was talking about coming together in unity for nonviolent struggle against this system of oppression. That's what he was talking about. He wasn't just talking about unity for unity's sake. He was talking about unity in struggle against this oppressive system. Right and that is actually the kind of unity that we need <laughs> you know we don't need to just come together with different people just for the sake of being different and the truth is we can't until we start addressing you know anti-blackness and its influence on non-black people especially what people who believe that they are white because when you send black people into spaces where that anti-blackness has not been dealt with, you're just sending them into a content, you're just setting them up to experience violence. And we know this from from, from Ruby Bridges' first day of school. She's the first black student to integrate that school in that year. And what did she face? As she's entering the school, there are white people outside, you know, uh, clan hoods and signs saying, we don't want to go to school with the N-word, Right. And her first year year inside the school was very isolating and very painful, right? So that's why that superficial unity doesn't work. People actually have to work through that stuff. And so Dr. King is talking about that, you know, unity for struggle, unity to struggle together against this oppressive system. And when we understand that the unity that we need is among our allies and not our opponents, (laughs) Then we stop wasting our time and our energy reaching across the aisle to people who have no intention of ever working together toward that goal. And some of those people don't even want racial harmony with us. They just, they just want for us to live among them quietly as their inferiors, <laughs> you know. And that's not something That we're willing to do So then we start understanding That we can let people go Especially when we start talking about That unity for struggle We actually don't need everyone Which is another common misconception So like when we start doing it people are like Oh well you know If you really want to do this If you're really serious about this Then you would be trying to Make Klansmen into anti-racist Because you got to You got to argue with the people Who disagree with you And the experts on this say First off you don't need everybody. You need three and a half percent of the population-ish. <laughs> you know, you need about you need a you need a small minority of people who are willing to engage in sustained nonviolent campaigns until the victories are won. Right. And so you actually can, you actually can say there are some people not worth moving because they're not movable. Right. So one thing you don't you don't need everybody. And the place to start with getting that minority to work with you is definitely not with your most ardent opposers. You know. So then, when, then once you start understanding that, you can start letting people go because you realize it's not necessary. So what is the benefit? Actually, I start asking. I would start asking people, what is the benefit of trying to get this person who really doesn't want to go on this journey? What is the benefit of trying to move them? And then I would ask them, what are the costs? Because it can cost you a lot emotionally, psychologically, constantly talking with people who are gaslighting you about your oppression.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, when you shared that about the community on the other side of Apocalypse and the people who have done the work together, who mm-hmm.
1: have
0: d- worked to understand together, not just um, worked to understand in different places, trying to understand the same thing, but coming together mm-hmm. and working together. And there's some, there's different kinds of conversations when we, and there and there's a different sense of purpose in that, too but it made me think about our mission. When we talk about creating solidarity, there is a relocation of who I stand with and why I stand with them and how I stand with them. And if this doesn't work for my my sister, the trans black woman,
1: mm-hmm. then
0: I won't allow it to work for me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a relocation, so I have to be willing to take that. And in the system, there's places where that's an L, but when I'm with my apocalyptic community, mm. that's a W. That's mm-hmm. a win. Mm-hmm. There's there's the love and celebration there. Mm-hmm. But I think one of my personal, it, it, it's not a. Ch- it's just what I wrestle with is that when you're in a system and this system celebrates certain things, yep. I know that by standing with my, you mm-hmm. know my trans brothers, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about a brother right now. Who I love, mm-hmm. I, I have I've said that I don't want to, I'm 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 I don't even know how to say this because I'm not sacrificing anything, yeah. But it, I know that I've located myself in a place that will not be, that will not have the like the the <laughs> I don't even the 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 W's the wins that come from a system mm. that celebrates white supremacy mm-hmm. are not. Are not the the wins that come in a system that celebrates solidarity mm-hmm. with the folks most oppressed and most marginalized. <clears throat> yeah. And I think that that's the for me in my mind, there's there's the place where I'm like, oh, I thought, like, you can't be running for solidarity mm-hmm. and you know, yelling from the mountaintops Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And Right. Ordinary, outraged, organized. Mm -hmm. You can't say all that over here, but then expect the system that is built on white supremacy to like champion you Mm -mm. or to like support you. Right. And Andre, I'm so thankful that I had a friend tell me, hey, look, Mark. If you do this thing, if you start to be vocal and locate yourself with the queer community on the side of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. You are not going to have, like, people who say they love you now will not return your phone calls. Yeah, You are going to lose. And so I really appreciate that invitation that you're reminding us. No, no, no. You're just finding your... your, It's not a new tribe, Mm -hmm. but it is the tribe that exists now in the space that you exist now.
1: Right, right, right.
0: And... So that that's helpful for me. I just really yeah. appreciate you sharing that. But I also know, and I, I wanted to share a side story too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first time that my daughter, my second daughter is fair, red hair, blue eyes, because mm-hmm. my mother is white mm-hmm. and my wife's father is white. She's okay. Filipino and I'm black.
1: Gotcha. So
0: our kids are really mixed. We went to a Black Lives Matter prayer uh, rally in our city. And mm-hmm. there was a man there yelling. Ordinary. The only <laughs> thing we need to change things is ordinary, outraged, organized human beings. Yeah, which was you, and I just <laughs> so appreciated that reminder.
1: Yeah, because we don't
0: we don't need superhuman. We don't right. need the the cosine of all these other people. Right. Stay the course. Your voice matters. Your presence matters. Yeah, but the first time that she was saying "Black Lives Matter." Was at that rally, mm. and we had meaningful conversations walking to it, and meaningful conversations walking back from it. Yeah. I just wanted to share that with you of how much you know I appreciate your presence and how much that has meant for me and, and my yeah. family and my journey with that.
1: That means a lot to me.
0: Oh, I, I'm I'm glad that that can, you know, I hope it gives you life, just like it gives me life to think about some of those moments. Yeah. Hey family, it's me Mark again And I'm so grateful you're listening to this conversation with Andre It's so meaningful to me He's so packed with wisdom And it just reminds me that every listen that you take of this podcast You're growing your empathy Broadening your perspectives And building solidarity If these are impactful for you Would you subscribe, add us on Spotify Subscribe on Apple Music or Apple Podcasts and would just share us with your friends and the people who you think this would be impactful for. Because we know it's not for everybody, but for those who need to be included in this kind of a conversation, we'd love for them to find a space where they feel seen and heard and accepted and valued and celebrated. Would you rate us and review the podcast wherever you're at? Again, this will help us to include more people in the conversation because we, with every listen, with every time we're engaging, with every time we extend celebration to someone, we are cultivating and unveiling the reality that ought to be the reality where we see each other as family. Now back to our conversation with Andre. When I think about all the ways that you showed up, all the meetings you took around those that Jackie Robinson memorial, all of the leadership you provided in some of those <laughs> strategized, spontaneous responses mm-hmm. moving towards a systemic change,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I'm imagining the kind of um, emotional physiological,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I don't even know how to say this. I want to call it letdown, but it's not. It's like you're hoping and giving everything you have to the world that you see is possible because this world is not the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't right. have to be this way. Right. And you're giving everything you got to try and give imagination for the different place, the apocalypse, the the vision for this is this is what's real and this is what can be real. Yeah. You've been doing all of that. How has your mind and body and emotion responded to that. Here we are in 2022.
1: Yeah. You know. I mentioned that I went to see the Tupac exhibit the other day in LA. And one thing that really struck me um was the first oh my God. Well the first uh part of the exhibit really brings you into the experience of a Af- Fanny Shakur, Tupac's mother. Mm, and she was mm-hmm. a black Panther. You know, she was a part of the Panther 21 who were incarcerated at some point. And, you know, later in her life, she really struggled with uh, her own mental health and with drug use, substance abuse. And, um, I say that to say that in my studying of freedom movements I see that a lot you know um I'm thinking of Huey P Newton you know who you know really struggled with his mental health later on in life I mean and that might be understating it for some you know because he mm-hmm. I think that he was acting in complete oppos- opposition of his earlier values later on in his life you know um But the incarceration, the harassment from the police, you know, the pressure of this anti-Black society, it weighs heavily on you, especially if you're trying to fight it. Even Dr. King, you know, was struggling with depression near the end of his life. Mm -hmm. And most of the people that I know from the front lines of the movement in L.A., who were on the front lines in 2020, are having a difficult mental health battle, you know, Mm -hmm. Myself included right now, you know, at the time of this recording. And I think part of it is, you know, you do take on the weight of something that is more than just your individual experience, you know. Yeah. Once you start really studying, you know, this global system, which I have been, you know, I I didn't just read about, you know, i didn't just think about my own experience and read about my you know read a couple of you know yeah. historical narratives like i've been reading mm. about imperialism i've been reading about capitalism and the slave trade i've been reading you know mm. and you see how deeply entrenched it is how resilient it is you know and you see how how well organized it is to keep people from having the information that will help them to fight better It can be really discouraging. You know, there is a lot to be hopeful about, I believe, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. the things that I've the things that I've been sharing these past several years about how, you know, about, you know, how it doesn't take everyone and, you know, about how we have seen these victories. And if the people won before, you know, as I said in my song, People of the World, where that ordinary, organized, outraged people actually took a segment of that speech and put it at the beginning of that song from that rally that you were at at the top of that song. You know, if we've done it before, we can do it again. There's much to be hopeful about, but there is much to look at and at times feel, you know, discouraged about. So, And one of those things that we don't talk about a lot, you know, which I experienced or that I saw in a, in a more probably as clear as I've ever seen it in 2020, was that people is that people leave or people, sorry, people join the movement. Oftentimes, because of the ways that they've been hurt in mainstream culture. And we come to the movement hopeful that we won't experience that thing, those types of things from our comrades. Uh, Right? Yeah. But we do. We do because the very same system that we are fighting is the system that we were brought up in.
0: That same system
1: taught us how to be people, it's shaped our common sense. And so there's an internal work that has to happen in us as we pursue the world that ought to be of becoming the people that we ought to be, right? Yeah. And what often happens or what I experience, and it seems to be common because I talk to people who were part of the autonomous zone in the Pacific Northwest, and I've talked to people you know, from other parts of the country, is that oftentimes... Two things happen. One is um the external work of confronting the system can take the place of doing the internal work of confronting the system within. And I'm not wow. saying I'm mm-hmm. not saying that you need to do one before the other as some people do because I don't believe I think if you do that then you never get to confront the system, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but it does have to happen. There's a work of healing that has happened inside of us that also mm-hmm. fortifies us to do the work, right? And I really have been challenged, and I was just thinking about this today, as I was looking for an office chair at Target this morning. And I'm literally, (laughs) I'd be having conversations with myself about movement (laughs) stuff and just thinking Uh, about this. And um, I was just thinking about love. You know, it's almost Valentine's Day at the time of this recording, and so obviously love is kind of in the air, you know, right now. Come on. And I was thinking about love, and I'm just thinking, like, there was a time when I really did give up on love as a political force, and as a means or end of political struggle. It just felt trite, you know, it felt like, you know, people say these things but really they're just kind of spiritually bypassing the work that needs to be done for social change. But I've really mm-hmm. thought about it, bro, and I have been in loveless organizing spaces. I have oh, been in spaces yeah. where love was not the means or the end and love was not really or it was rhetoric, you know, you know talking about black yeah. people loving each other. But I literally have been in organizing spaces where the lead organizer referred to themselves as a dictator, you know. Yeesh. And yeah. And they co- they have they hold several marginalized identities, and I'm thinking, were well, you holding several marginalized identities, more marginalized identities than I, even so, mm-hmm. you know are now recreating the same kind of hierarchy and toxic workspace in this movement space as you could anywhere else in mainstream culture. And this has really challenged me about the the value of love as a core value in organizing work and as a political force. And so what does that have to do with mental health? I mean, I marched so much in 2020 that even when I'd stopped by the wintertime, my Achilles were sore for months. For mm-hmm. months. I For months mm-hmm. I spent like just time on my couch just massaging the back of my foot because yeah. we marched so much. Um, but I also uh, was diagnosed with PTSD, you know, in early 2021. And it had to do with experiences that I had with certain organizers who, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to bash them. I'm just saying that when we don't do this internal work, then we bring the stuff into the movement. So there were organizers acting like right. bullies. I was having nightmares yeah. about the police, yeah. about people coming in, you know, kicking in my door and shooting me in my sleep. And sometimes the assailant was the police and other times it was other organizers, you know, wow. who would threaten yeah. me harm. And so what does it do to you when you have you feel like you've woken up and you've seen the violence that's, that built and structures your society and you have invested so much into it that your literal body is sore for months after you have, you know, stopped having that level of activity. But then you experience the same, you know, kind of uh, toxicity within the movement, you know. Yeah. and the thing yeah. that has really challenged me is that you know I've been saying a couple of things. First off, let me tell you a story. There was one time in Pasadena where you know uh, a group I was working with called for an occupation of City Hall uh, without much planning or forethought. It just kind of happened, right? So <laughs> you know yeah. we're there, you know we're all there that night and. We don't have any training on how to uh you know let's say we all want to move in a unit we want to flee the flee the scene. We don't have any training in doing that together. We don't have any training on holding mm-hmm. space together. You know, how to lock how to you know make yourselves harder to move. We don't, we have we've yeah. we've made no plans or no agreements about who's going to get arrested and and why and who's not going to get arrested and who's going to call people's people if they get arrested and all kinds of stuff. we don't we don't have any of those plans. So mm-hmm. That night, because because someone announced that the occupation was happening on Facebook Live, (laughs) um, the police had all day (laughs) to plan for us. Right. So around midnight that night, the police show up, uh, the, the Pasadena police show up with with aid from other police departments. They are in riot gear. They have their shields and batons. And they have this vehicle that looks kind of like a hybrid. It looks like a truck and a tank had a baby. You know what I'm saying? Like,
0: Yeah. Right?
1: They have this bright light on and they tell us, you know, in the name of the people of California that we have to leave the premises. And I'm sitting here thinking, I've thought about this a lot. And when I talk to certain people about it, I say, you have to think about how well-organized and well-resourced this this thing is, this regime is, oh. right? With and you're This te-
0: regime meaning white supremacy?
1: Yes, yes. You know, this white okay, supremacist state that has all the guns yeah. and all the weapons and all the handcuffs and all the prison cells and all the law mm. and, you know, and all the media yeah. to back up their stereotypes of the people. You know, like, they have all this, yeah. they have all these resources. Yeah. In Nonviolent Struggle, they call nonviolence war without weapons, so let's look at this as a conflict between two – let's look at this as a military conflict then, right, in which one yeah. side has all the weapons and the other side has none, right? Yeah. They have mm-hmm. all those resources. We have to be careful with the resources that we have, right? I kept saying this to people. So you have to think about the the, the time that these ordinary organized outrage people have their spare time that they have, you know uh, right. what, what skills and talents do they have? How much experience do they have on the street? Like all the resources, right? We are expanding. I kept saying at the time, we are expanding all of our resources in a very non-strategic way because it's almost yeah. like, imagine that hybrid truck tank thing against a oh. bunch of broken toys, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. cause that's basically what we did. Like we are like, the island of yeah. misfit toys. Yep, you see, yeah, you remember Toy Story? It's like Sid's toy. Yep. Sid's toy chest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not aw, even man. Andy's toy chest. We got you got Sid's toy chest because <laughs> because remember we all coming into this movement broken. You know, oh, we're all yeah. coming into this movement with our with different levels of of trauma that we're already dealing with. Standing in front of a highly organized, highly resourced machine of violence. And I really wow, start thinking yeah. about this and I'm like, man, like without the without the investments in in our healing, there's just no way that we can win this in this way, you know, because we're we're gonna burn out so quickly, you know? And that is what I wow. feel like I've seen happen. So I keep saying, how can we fight the power if we don't feel powerful? How can we fight the power if we're not empowered ourselves? You know? Mm-hmm. And so it does do a number on our mental health, and our mental health is, you know, one of our resources, you know. Imagine standing in front of that police line, not only with a strategic plan, but with a year's worth of mindfulness practice every day. Wow. How strong are you now? You know what I'm saying? Wow. Imagine being in the back of a police van... Or in, a, or in a cell and you have learned how to um, connect to ultimate reality, you know, even though, you know, in the situations and and the folks that went before us, I mean, for the people, I know a lot of people, they're not into religion or spirituality, you know, especially when it comes to liberation work. But I've been thinking a lot about like Dr. King being able to pray while he was in solitary confinement in that Birmingham jail, mm-hmm. you know, mm. to put the man in solitary confinement. Do you know how hard that is on the psyche? But his mm. ability to connect to spirit in that time, I think is partly what helped him to endure that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. there are many people that you could talk about in that way. So, man, it has done a number on a lot of our mental health and it has really helped me to understand, um, a different way of understanding this liberation work. Cause I talk a lot about political interventions. And usually I talk about that in the sense that like, we need to organize in order to attack the pillars of power that uphold uh, s- s- systemic oppression. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But another intervention against this is also just has to do with building the alternative structures and institutions that we need in order to empower ourselves so that we are not, first off, not so dependent on the same system that oppresses us, Yeah. but also so Goodness. that we are powerful to confront that, powerful enough to confront that system. Because I mean, you know, if we're traumatized going in and we're traumatizing ourselves again by being together and we're enduring wow. more trauma from confronting the system, like it's, it's, you have to start asking some questions about like, are we making things better or worse. Wow. Yeah. Andre, that
0: that is <laughs> my mind. Um, first of all, I feel heavy about the situations you've been in. And I think about the ways that you've dedicated yourself to understand. And I also understand, like in my mind, I'm imagining what it feels like. We talk about reactivity and the passion And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I know some of the leaders around Pasadena. And I think about the ways that like reactivity and woundedness, woundedness and the way anger can give us a sense of agency when we are hurting and we just want to do something. And so there's this spontaneous reactive action that costs you, Mm -hmm. that pains you, that puts you in heart. And then you're having dreams. So there's a there's I'm taking a moment because I just feel like. To breathe a little bit and um, to give space to that, because I feel like I'm breathing, but also just grieving that reality for the, mm. the just and it and it itself is back to what you said. It is fruit of the oppressive system
1: because mm-hmm.
0: you come out of that system and then to just declare to try to work for something different with the same mindset or tools or uh, understanding of that system it's still that system is seeping into how you're trying to create the new system or to come against that system, and that's not helpful. But what is really, I'm really curious about what you mentioned about love. Mm. Would you share, like, share with me about the idea of love that does carry power with you now, that is not trite, that is true.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there's this thing, I think or I've seen it a lot and I've fallen into this pitfall as well, right? So when I started like really going into like social justice work, there was this assumption that I had to take on all kinds of different attitudes and shed all kinds of different thoughts and kind of become this persona of kind of like a hardened, pragmatic revolutionary, right? That awesome. assumption
0: was other people putting
1: that on you or you putting it on yourself? I think it's a mix of both, you know, like yeah. it's stuff that you, yeah. it's because, all, okay, so first off, let's just get to the human level of things, right? Like psychologically, <laughs> belief and belonging are always connected, right? Mm. And so there is something inside of all of our brains that wants to belong, right? And that's even more important than facts and data and information. It's like, Absolutely. what do I need yeah. to do in order to belong? Right. So if you hear a bunch of people who you who you look up to as activists or revolutionaries or whatever, you know, people who are world changers, you know, you hear that they all uh, they all read. They all read Marx. Right. There's a part of you that's going to start thinking, like, oh, man, like, do I need to read Marx, too, so I can, you know, be a part? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So there are, you know, things like that. And so I think that that's kind of where that pressure kind of came from a mix of just like assuming that I need to adopt that. And I find that that's like really uh, not just reading Marx, like a lot of people don't read Marx, but, you know, just, you know, assuming that you need to like become like this kind of like badass, you know what I mean? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And... That it kind of it kind of takes away the softness. Now, a part of that is just the influence of like patriarchy. <laughs> like, oh yeah. And when we talk yeah. about freedom fighters, a lot of times we start talking about men. We be talking about brother yeah. Martin, brother Malcolm, and Martin, and all these kind of people. We forget all the wow. women, you know, that that have yeah. uh, uh, contributed to this and the ways. Mm that they saw things that these men who were deeply influenced by patriarchy you know that that they saw it from a different vantage point a different angle they were more integrative i feel like so Mm -hmm. so anyway remember i'm talking about this like my act my political action was the result of political awakening right so You know, we, you know, we were getting woke, (laughs) you know, and learning, (laughs) learning the problematic origins of so many things in society, you're just shedding, shedding, shedding and deconstructing and reconstructing all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, so I started learning about some of the problematic origins of, you know, romance and romantic, romance as an ideology, as one author, one scholar says it. First off, there's a whole canon of literature about the of sociological literature uh, that connects uh, romance and capitalism, which is Ooh. fascinating. Yeah, and yeah. I've read some of that. If I were just a scholar and just wanted to be a professor, that is exactly what I would study. I think it's so fascinating. So anyway, I was reading this literature and I came across like the problematic origins around, you know, You know, things like buying diamond rings and the white wedding and, you know, the honeymoon. I mean, I didn't even know. Did you know this at like the honeymoon, at least in America? I don't know. I don't know if there are many honeymoon traditions, but all I know is that like in America, that the honeymoon has something to do with white people just wanting to be around other white people after they got married. And so they would like just have retreats, basically, at at Niagara (laughs) Falls you know and they would have these retreats after they get married and it's just like this is a, this is a this is a white experience for white people you know wow um wow. i didn't know like that a lot that a, a lot of these like um ideas around like sexual purity you know about a, a woman on, only having sex with one man and stuff like that came from like The development of private property, because, you know, as they're establishing private property, these people who are they're 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 establishing private property to accumulate and contain their wealth. Right. And so that brought up the need for inheritance customs so that they can pass on that wealth to people in their family. And so in order to identify who's going to get the inheritance, they have to know who had sex with who. And the easiest way to figure out who had sex with who was to tell women don't have sex with nobody else. You know, so, so, I mean, I'm start, I started, I'm start looking at these origins and stuff like that. And I'm like, Mm. man, my love like problematic anyway. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, uh, (laughs) you know, like it's, it's hard. It just, I just have not had an easy time with dating Mm. in general, you Mm. know, um, and so I, I was just like, oh, okay, well it seemed like the whole thing is bullshit. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like like it, it yeah. has its roots in capitalism and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of pushed the personal part of it off as well. And the political part about love seemed like it was bullshit too, because this is what white people say like as the answer to racism all the time. It's like, we just need to love one another. And when they talk about we need to love one another, they're not talking about actually taking stock of, of the harm that has been caused, analyzing the system, seeing how the power structure works and like all that kind of thing, yeah. right? So, right? So I just got right. to a point where in all this deconstructing, I was just like, love just didn't seem useful. I didn't think it was like impossible or didn't exist. It's just like, it just don't seem useful as a concept to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so (laughs) there is like a whole journey that I don't have time to get into, like how that came back. I think it's probably going to be the subject of another book one day because Uh there's so much to be said about it. But what I will say in short about how that kind of broke that was first off, I read a ton about nonviolence, you know? I started with like Henry David Thoreau and read all the way down, you know, to current thinkers, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But I also intended to read the black radical tradition as well. I wanted to read Brother Martin and Assata Shakur and Frantz Fanon and all that kind of stuff. And so I have -hmm. been doing that, you know, I've been on that journey and it's actually the folks in the radical tradition that really brought love back to the table, you know, Uh even more so. I mean, of course, Gandhi and Dr. King and them, they're going to tell you that love is important. And I'm not no (laughs) shade to them. Dr. King is one of my biggest influences as a thinker and as an activist. But Mm. the way that Dr. King spoke about love was just like he calls himself an extremist for love. And I agree with him because there's that one sermon that he has about loving your enemies where he says, you know, we will meet the oppressor's capacity for violence with our capacity to endure it. You know, he said, I say to all of you, you know, I would rather die than hate you. And I was just, I was just like, man, like, I just imagine myself being a parishioner in that room when Dr. King is saying those things. Because it's very Mm -hmm. easy to agree with him in 2007, 2017, 2020, 2022, when you're not, when you don't, you don't think you're going to walk out on the street and be lynched by one of your neighbors. You know, I try to imagine myself in the sanctuary when he's saying this and I'm like. Man, yeah. I think if I'm in that sanctuary, I'm looking around like, y'all hear me just said we're gonna meet their capacity for violence with our ability to suffer. I don't know, I don't know if I could go that far. Yeah. yeah. You they know? got a big capacity for violence. Yeah, they their their capacity for violence is insatiable. You know, at the mm. time, it seemed, right? It seemed yeah. insatiable at the time. So yeah. anyway, I just couldn't I, I just had trouble with it, is what I'm saying. I just had a lot of trouble with it. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. I start reading the more radical tradition and Robin D.G. Kelly in his book, Freedom Visions, or Freedom Dreams, he talked about reclaiming love as a serious political force. And I was like, oh man, oh no. (laughs) I don't even remember the details. I just remember him saying it. I was like, man, we talking about love? I wasn't expecting to talk about love here. But what really changed it for me was a couple of things. I talked to you about loveless organizing. So part of it was my personal experience. I saw Mm -hmm. firsthand Um, I saw firsthand what it was like to experience abuse within the movement and not only see it, but to experience it myself, you know, Mm -hmm. with people who are, you know, trying to wield power over other people in the movement and trying to consolidate power and, you know, disrespecting people and not honoring people and using these manipulative tactics that I used to see in church and never, never thought I was, I thought I wouldn't see them again outside the evangelical church, but totally did you know, on wow. the streets. You know, I remember, like, <clears throat> one of the groups that I was in imploded because of the behavior of the lead organizer. And when it happened, they just blamed it on me. They just said that I did it. People were leaving the group before I left. But when I left, a lot of people left because I think a lot of people took that as a signal that something was wrong. So they blamed mm. it on me. And I called them to to tell them that, you know, I was going to leave and try to explain why. They didn't let me get a word in. And the thing that they said to me they cut me off first off. They weren't listening to me. And the thing that they said to me was, "You just need to figure out which God you're serving." Now, I'm gonna get off the phone before I say something I regret. Is what they said to me. Wow. Now that sounds like some stuff that you know I would. That that sounds like I was talking to some toxic pastor somewhere, right? Yes. Yep.
0: Wow. So
1: I mean, I experienced loveless organizing, and I my experience of loveless organizing is that. We 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 can't get free that way, you know. We weren't even experiencing freedom in the work of trying to pursue the freedom. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, that's one is personal experience. So I was just like, I've seen what it I've seen what it does, and all it and all it gave me was PTSD. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But on top of that, on a, in a theoretical sense, you know, France Fanon was the one uh-huh. who really and really challenged me on this and it's crazy because this man wrote wretched of wow. the wretched of the earth <laughs> you know what I'm saying yeah. this man was saying yeah. you know this is the one who wrote decolonization is a violent process he's saying like listen you got to take up arms basically you know at least if i mm-hmm. understand him correctly was, it, this man is a proponent of, of armed struggle but he put love back on the table because i read his book or i am reading sorry i'm I make books like that, I it'll take me years to read because I'm making through mm-hmm. it so slowly. So I'm reading A Dying Co- A Dying Colonialism mm-hmm. is one of the books that I'm reading right now. And he's ta- he's retracing the Algerian struggle for freedom against French French colonization. And one of those chapters is about the Algerian family. Every chapter is really about how the struggle for freedom changes those who are pursuing, change it, changes the colonized. You know, how it transforms them, Mm -hmm. which uh, as I'm as I'm as I'm talking about that, I also want to say that is that is what happens in my book, too. You see, like I change in this book, every chapter, like I change Mm -hmm. Um, anyway. So one of those subsections of that chapter on the Algerian family, he talks about the Algerian couple. And he talks about how it went from just kind of this cohabitation to them being partners in the struggle for freedom. And what he says is that the couple is no longer shut in on itself. That the their relationship is no longer an end in itself. And that really spoke to me because what I found... Wow yeah uh what i found as i was trying to date while i was trying to organize was that first off the the trauma within the movement like i said like we all have our own bag and stuff like that just made like those relationships with other activists like really difficult because we both are having our own trauma and it's like we both start talking to each other like we're the system. So, like, I'm talking to you like you white supremacy and you talking to me like I'm patriarchy, you know? Like, it just,
0: you know.
1: And I say white supremacy not saying I was just trying to date white women, but, you know, it's internalized, you know, Um, too. So, but you know what I mean? Like, we're, we're fighting with each other and then, you know, you go into the movies and this person wants to, like, fight with the manager because they feel like they've been treated unjustly over something. I'm like, man, can we just... Man, can we just yeah. watch the movie? Like, man, just we gotta yeah, yeah, let something yeah. slide. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. be <laughs> Fighting the power everywhere. Um. So that was one thing. But mm. then, yeah. but then outside of you know dating women that were outside of the movement, it was like, and this was the bigger issue for me. Why I felt I felt it hard to connect with love anymore was just it just felt like these relationships were happening in spite of political reality or in defiance of political reality or without knowledge or acknowledgement of political reality. So I actually mm-hmm. wrote about this in a, in a Medium blog post recently. But just like I remember, I started feeling like, okay, I'm definitely moving out of the country. My family's Jamaican. I'm just going to go back to Jamaica first and, and figure it out from there. Especially as, you know, Trump's rhetoric became more authoritarian near the end of his presidency. And I was just like, man, I've, I've been planning to get out of here since 2017. And it looks like it's time to go. So... Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was talking to to someone, and you know, I told her, I, I explained to her like I was feeling very unsafe in America. I felt like I wasn't sure what was going to happen to America, and that I was planning to expatriate and I was going to go to Jamaica and wait out election season, and I might come back if Joe Biden wins the pre- wins the presidency. But even then, I wasn't really sure because I'd already had a conversation with myself. Earlier in 2020, and was like, if Joe Biden wins the presidency, do you still want to stay in America? And I was like, no, not really. So, you know, I just didn't really know what I want to do. So I'm explaining yeah. this to to someone, and after I explained this, to her, she just said, and all that is more important than me.
0: Oh my God! Yeah. And I was <laughs> like,
1: um, I mean, I, I mean, clearly, if I say yes, she's gonna be offended, so I didn't just say yes, but yes. <laughs> It, it, it is. Yeah. And yeah. I felt like that was kind of a common... T- I tell that story to say, like, that was the type of conversation that I felt like I'd been having for years was, like, we're talking about having kids without talking about the fact that humans are literally in a battle for survival as a species. Like, I don't know what kind mm-hmm. of world these kids are going inherit, to inherit. We're talking about building houses in places that might be flooded, you know, by 2050. And there may not be a city there anymore, you know. All, all that kind of thing. So when Fanon talks, oh, sorry, let me just make one more. The One of the scholars that I was talking about, her name is Laurie Essig, and she wrote a book called Love, Inc., and I recommend it to anyone who is interested in just seeing the connection between romance and capitalism. And she talked about how oftentimes our common sense around romance is that it's a very privatized experience. And so mm. I just felt like people that I was dating were tr- inviting me to make my life smaller, And Not to be grandiose about it But like I literally was thinking about Like how can I participate in the struggle To keep a dictatorship from being Established in America (laughs) You know what I'm saying I have mentors who have been smuggled into other countries In a cardboard box to help other activists Plan you know to overthrow The dictator and when I read that I found that Exciting I was like you know I consider it maybe (laughs) you know what I'm saying Yeah, (laughs) And so I just couldn't reconcile, like, this common sense that says, come into this one house and care for this one family on this one plot of land and, you know, just be in this one section. Not We don't even know our neighbors in this scenario. Like, we're not even, like, in a collective, in yeah. a neighborhood where everyone's connecting, we're taking care of each other. It's just, you know, just come settle down here. So when Fanon writes about the couple no longer being an end in itself. Yeah. I was like, damn it fanon. I might have to write love songs again
0: <laughs> mm, with a reimagined definition of love.
1: Yeah, with a love Jeez. that is with a love that um, is politically relevant, right? Politically aware and that is connected to the collective, right And I think this is what Dr. King mm-hmm. writes about when he says, you know, that power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental and anemic, you know? That love at its best is implementing the demands of justice, right? And why Dr. Mm -hmm. Cornel West says, you know, love is what justice looks like in the public square, right? Um, And so with a more robust politically relevant um idea of love that includes strategic action on the collective level and um communal care on the personal level that's something i can get with and i think we need it because again like i said i've experienced loveless organizing all that i've seen come from that is more trauma and more pain and truth be told you know as problematic as as problematic as christianity has been in the world you know, the, especially the colonizer's version. Hmm. I think that there is something to this idea of a of a belief system where forgiveness is at the center, oh. where transformative oh, love is at the center. And I think that when we talk about abolition yeah. in the world, it resonates with the values that I grew up with as a Christian, where, you know, we believe that people are, as Brian Stevenson says, that they are more than the worst thing they've ever done that they, that trans, transformation is possible for them that renewal is possible that even resurrection you know uh you know if if you can believe that people come back from the dead right what can't you believe is possible for this world and mm-hmm. for other people and wow. um i think that that is that is an idea of love at the center of social progress that is worth keeping yeah Yeah. I think without it then we start to mistake the means toward social progress the the movement itself the struggle itself as the end.
0: Yeah. Andre. I I I'm so inspired by that take and by your journey and and before we kind of get out of here. I want to talk a little bit about scripture because one of the things that we do is reimagine scripture. And when you talk about ordinary, outraged and organized, it doesn't have to be some, you know, some humongous thing out there. It made me think about a passage in scripture, a story that Jesus is telling Jesus is continuing to reimagine scripture and reinterpret the ways that you Mm -hmm. thought this looked like. It doesn't look like that. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about it doesn't have to be this way, I imagine Mm -hmm. Jesus is saying the same thing. I would maybe translate the kingdom of heaven. The reality you're looking for looks like this Mm -hmm. or the kinship of heaven. When people are interconnected, the solidarity of what life is supposed to be like, what it can be like, looks Mm -hmm. like this. And he keeps telling these stories of like, it doesn't have to look like this. We, we don't have to respond to anger with anger or violence with violence. We don't have to treat each other this way. And so he gets to this point and he, he makes these points about some other things. And then he says this, and this is what your presence in essence made me think of. He says, the, or the, the, the scriptures say in Matthew 13, verse 31, says, Jesus put another parable before them. And he said... The kingdom of heaven, that the way things could be like, is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took, a person takes, and sows into their field. It's the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make a nest in its branches. It, it's like the reality we want to live in is like leaven that a person takes and hides into their flower until every ounce of flour is mixed with leaven. This is the scripture that who you are makes me think of. How do you respond to that on the back end of our conversation about love and activism and people, mm-hmm. What stands out to you?
1: You know, um, I think that when I think about that that passage, I often just think about how um, we are discouraged, I think most often because we feel like we don't have enough or that we're not enough, you know, mm-hmm. to do this work of trying to change the world, you know? Yeah, and then a weird thing happens with me where because I've done a lot of this studying and I'm a good teacher. Like I'm I'm good at putting at breaking down concepts for people, helping people understand things. I'm an articulate person. I should be. I read the dictionary in, in, in high school and and <laughs> and middle school, you know, because I heard Malcolm X did it. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna do it. Um, but then i find you know that when you go on a journey like i have and you share things with people then they kind of magnify you in a way right <laughs> and they forget you know i'm just a musician who got fed up with seeing people die like me and i went on a journey to try to understand and do something And if I can inspire people the way that I have, and if I can reach as many people as I have, which is crazy to me that there are thousands of people on my mailing list from around the world that wait, you know, that look forward to getting an email from me so I can share with them what I've learned and stuff like that. But if I can do that, anybody can do it, you know, and it doesn't have to look like that. It doesn't have to look. I mean, those are my gifts. My gifts are music, teaching, writing, communication. That's my gift. Right. But I just use Mm -hmm. what I had right i can't do everything there are tons of things that should be done and need to be done for this for this for this struggle that can't be done by me because i don't have the talent but there's somebody listening that that's your talent right and you look at yeah. it like moses look like moses was 80 years old when he was called by god to go confront con- con- confront pharaoh you know and mm-hmm. all he has is a shepherd staff in his hand and god is like all right i can work with that you know i can work with that so I think of like, when I think of this passage, I think of like, like I say, it takes three and a half percent of the population. This is statistic, right? This is, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. I should say it differently. No regime in a massive study of nonviolent movements was able to withstand their sustained active nonviolent resistance of three and a half percent of the population. That's a mustard seed of the population, right? Wow. I'm yeah. just one person and I reach thousands of people. That's a mustard seed. You know what i'm saying that that makes it least yeah. right um yeah. there was one more uh example of that that i was thinking of and it's, it's slipping my mind oh it makes me think about hope and faith as well which have also come back to me you know as i think about this you know movement because you know i really did give up on a lot i gave up on spirituality altogether i gave up on god i gave up on all that stuff mm. and honestly the stuff is still traumatizing for me i'm still figuring some of that stuff out you know what i mean because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i'm trying to understand spirituality without the influence of colonization which is very difficult you know and yeah. um you know so anyway there i didn't feel like i could be hopeful for a long time because it just felt like Man, like the, the the hashtags keep coming. The stories Ugh. of these broken black bodies keep coming. Yeah. You know, how yeah. can I be hopeful? And I I came to understand hope in a different way through reading Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark. That book saved mm-hmm. my life, you know, along with many others. Wow. And basically she was talking about how like hope hope depends on our uncertainty about the future. You know, because yeah. the fact that we don't know what could happen and that our actions have a have an influence on the outcome, that creates the space to believe that our action could, you know, that, that we can change the story. I always tell people, you know, history is not a story that's happening to us. It's one that we're writing together, you know, through our collective action. Um, uh-huh. And for me, I always think about, you know, the things that we're talking about are huge, man. This, this system of, of anti-black violence, Is global and is old, (laughs) it's deeply entrenched, you know, and it's daunting thinking about confronting it. And but we can't fight it assuming that we can have the assurance that we'll see the result of our actions or even that we'll win, you know, yes, yeah, Um, yeah. But there is a chance, you know, yeah, if we don't Mm -hmm. act. Well, we know for sure what's going to happen because those who are determined to have a world b- based on anti-blackness are not going to stop. Like they they're not going to stop. They're going to keep working right. on that yeah. project until there's no more human beings here left. And it is an existential threat to human society, to human existence. You know, but they're going to keep working on that. But there's a chance. <laughs> there is a chance mm-hmm. that if we do our best to fight this thing strategically in a sustained way, that we can win, you know? And no matter how big or small that window is, I'm convinced that we have to take it, you know? We have to.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. And so it's not the, you know, it's not the kind of hope that, that you know, people get excited about all the time, you know, where it's just like, I know that if we do this thing, we will win, you know? Like that <laughs> is, oh man, I wish I could have that kind of certainty and that kind of hope. But I got yeah. this little... Uh, I I've got, I've got this this conviction that there's a tiny uh, crack in the door of social progress, and if we can get, and if we can just get a few ordinary, organized, outraged people come on to put our collective foot in that crack in the door, Come on. Maybe yeah. we can pry it open.
0: Yeah, wow, that is so meaningful. For me, the thought that comes to my mind really quickly. It's just that the time in mm. in bread and leavening bread is one thing, it can happen pretty quickly, which is interesting. Thinking mm-hmm. about maybe the the lightning in a bottle or striking when the iron is hot, understanding how can how can the amount of planning that has gone on, the strategy, the spontaneity, and the continuous work meet a moment that exponentially kind of creates momentum. Right. That's when I think about the leaven. But when I think about the mustard seed, the thing that comes to my mind is the time, how long it takes for a tree,
1: for this small
0: little seed or the smallest seed. And I think there's a lot of pressure, again, that comes from the space that would want to suppress anything new or anything um, challenging to that system to say that. Yeah, it's got to be fast. It's got to be really meaningful really quickly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so for me, this this reading today reminds me, it takes a long time for a tree to create shade for others. It takes a long time for a tree to become stable enough for yes the, the birds to find homes in it. So that's, that's, uh, that's what comes to my mind on that today. Andre, <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. I'm so grateful that you would <laughs> hang out with us, remind us of your journey, invite us to pre-order your book, All yeah, the thanks. White Friends I Couldn't Keep, which comes out next month. Andre, how else can we follow you and be a part of your journey?
1: Uh, well, yeah, thanks for having me, first off. And um, I think the best way, the best two ways, really, is um, I have an email list on my website, AndreHenry.co. You know? So um, right now I send out things once a month. I used to do once a week, but... You know. Yeah. It's not sustainable anymore. <laughs> you know? No, yeah. So we do once yep. a month. I I am in touch with links about anti racism, black uh black healing, racial healing, all of that. And of course, you know, music and, you know, whatever I'm up to at the time. And then I mean, people don't really take advantage of this enough, but like my cell phone number is online. You know, <laughs> like it's on Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like my it's not direct, you know, but it's it's a direct way to contact me, though. You know, mm-hmm. it's my community. It's my text community. And uh, a lot of people don't take advantage of it. But really, like for those who do, I mean, I send out uh, I just send out an inspirational quote every Wednesday and I just connect with people there. You know, so, you know, if people want to talk, want to connect. That's a good way to do it. I mean, it's text, so it's not like a great way to for like for people who want like education <laughs> like that's. Yeah. That's not what that's for. That's, but it is a way to just be like, just chop it up, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Andre, I'm, I share with you just like how interesting that you, the, the, you, the organized, organize, ordinary, organized, outraged brother, how you've impacted me and my imagination for the future, but also how you've impacted my daughter. And she may never remember you. And, and I might have to show her this podcast when she's 30 or something like that Be like, hey, you know that one time when you blah, 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 and We had these conversations. But I so appreciate you, brother. Thank you for the work I you're doing. You I too. can't wait to read your book um, and I can't wait to text you. So, yeah, appreciate thank you.
1: you. I appreciate it, man. Very cool. All
0: right, my brother. You Take care. Everybody you too. Peace.